Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello and welcome to Politico's 2016 Nerdcast, where we bring you the stories behind the stories and geek out on this amazing circus of an election. It's Thursday, May 5th. I'm your host, Kristen Roberts. And here's where we are. We just got out of Indiana. We saw Ted Cruz drop out, John Kasich drop out, and Donald Trump is the last man standing. That's our Republican nominee. Now, Bernie Sanders won, but frankly, he's already out of it. So we are in general election territory now. It's a Trump versus Clinton ticket. And honestly, these are two of the most hated people in America. We're going to talk about how hated they are. We're going to talk about just how much money these hated people have to raise and which voters are going to give it to them. I'm joined here by Ken Vogel, who Hola. is Eli Stokels. <laughs> Nerd number two. <laughs> Charlie Matessian, our senior politics editor. Hey, Kristen. These are two of the most unpopular politicians in history vying for the presidency. Don't sugarcoat it. It's really ugly. Yeah, a little bit. It's really ugly. And only going to get uglier. So how's it going to affect the general, Eli? The fact that, well, I think both of these candidates at the end of the day, I mean, they have their heart supporters, but the people who generally determine how these elections go, I think more than not will be voting against one of these people rather than voting for them. It's got to affect the ads that are cut, right? I mean, negative, negative, negative. It's going to be like a bloodletting. Plays right into the hands of some of these Hillary Clinton allies who have been honing the art of negative campaigning for years and years. It also, I think, potentially as a risk for Donald Trump, plays into her hands that he is so aggressive in going after her and has signaled that he's only going to get more aggressive in going after her and her husband because she, perhaps more than any other politician, has been able to effectively uh, sort of play the victim and turn that around and go after him. And we've seen already her showing an ability to do that in a way that I think is pretty effective. Charlie, when you look at these numbers, these fave unfave numbers, what do you see in that? What does that tell you about what the general election story will be? Well, it looks very much like a race to the bottom when you look at the cross tabs in these polls. Uh, for both of them, their numbers are so bad. Uh, it's hard. It, it's hard to imagine how either of them really uh, could exist in an election with these kinds of numbers. Uh, meaning, if you look at Donald Trump's numbers, um, his unfavorable ratings with independents are 57%, among women, 64%. I mean, 64%, that's two out of every three women, have an unfavorable opinion of the guy. And so just almost as a historical exercise, it's sort of fascinating to see, can he do anything about that? Uh, and if he doesn't, then what, what does that race look like? Yeah, in fact, Charlie, I'm looking at a stat here that uh, 46% is the lowest percentage won by either party's nominee this century. Well, Clinton is that for, in, in the hypothetical head-to-head matchup, Clinton's at 47% and Donald Trump is at 41%. So we could potentially see historically low uh, rate of uh, votes among the winner. And to think that Donald Trump is the candidate that the angry people have chosen, right? 
and everybody else hates him. But how, you know, if this is a race to the bottom, it's a negative campaign, how are you going to change these perceptions? Because these are not new figures, right? No, Both of these people not. have been on the scene for 30 years. They have name ID of basically 100%. So what you think of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump is pretty much what you're going to think in November. I think Trump is a little bit more susceptible to attempts to define him just because he's not been viewed as he likes to brag about. He's not been viewed in this context before. So now you're holding him up. Now he's saying, I'm going to be more presidential. Well, how about these comments about women, about Mexicans, about whomever are those presidential? And then on the other side, I wonder Hillary. if that's true, though, because, you know, we saw in a primary, unlike any primary we've ever seen before, in that America was tuned in. So that stuff has been gone through already. He's faced a lot of withering criticism on the debate stage, in the media. None of that's going to be new Yeah, but he's time. only getting, uh, you know, he's getting around 38% of the vote. And that's uh, not a recipe for success in a, in a, in a uh, general election. And on the other side, Hillary, I mean, I, I love it when these, when conservatives say, you know, Hillary, the, the, she's gotten such good press. The media has given her a free pass. Like, no, Hillary Clinton has gotten more media scrutiny over a longer period of time than I think any politician in the history of the world. That seriously, I mean, there's never been this much media. There's never been this much, uh, you know, political media and bandwidth for political media. And she has been right in the heart of it for 30 years. I just think it's important to remember that, you know, Yes, Donald Trump, all the stuff that people threw at him. It didn't hurt him in the primary. It didn't cost him the primary. His supporters pretty locked in. But everybody else, all the general election voters have been listening. There's a reason that his negatives with women, with Hispanics, his low numbers across the board, there's a reason his negatives are so high and his general election number is so low. And that's because all this stuff it may not have affected his supporters, but people have been listening. They've been watching. It's going to be hard for him to sort of turn that back. So which candidate has the advantage here, right? Is it Hillary Clinton whose baggage yes. uh, we know? Is it Trump who seems to relish in the negativity? No, the one advantage I think Donald Trump has is that he's running as an outsider. And Hillary Clinton can say Donald Trump is offensive to X, Y, and Z group. But Donald Trump can just say, and he's already started to say this, Hillary Clinton, you've been around for 30 years. What have you done? I mean, he's just going to paint her with the broadest brush possible as somebody who's already been in politics, already been trying to lead the country. She's been first lady. She's been a senator. She's been a cabinet member, secretary of state. And yet, what has happened? Right? People are upset with where the country is. She's part of the problem. That's the reason. That's the best argument he has. And that's what we're going to hear Charlie, from him. Charlie, does negative campaigning work better for one party's voters over the other? Do Democrats respond differently to negative advertising than Republicans do? Negative. I'll answer that. Kim. Go for it. Uh, it's particularly tricky. And we've seen this with Hillary Clinton time and again to do negative campaigning against a female candidate. We've already seen her try to turn some of Donald Trump's attacks back on him and suggest that uh, sort of play the victim, something that she has done, again, successfully in past campaigns. Uh, this will this will put that to the test because Trump has done has has uh, spewed a lot of attacks that you would you would think by sort of conventional metrics would would backfire uh, and they haven't or to the, the, the to the degree that they have uh, they've been they've backfired insufficiently to slow his rise or to stop him from winning uh, Republican primaries. 
obviously it's a different swath of the population that he's going for here. And so it'll be a real test, I think. You know, I think one of the most interesting things that I um, heard over the course of last weekend at the White House Correspondents' Dinner was from some of Hillary Clinton's data people, you know, the people who are looking at the numbers and trying to figure out the electoral college map. And Charlie, I'm really interested in your view on this. They seem to hold seem to sincerely believe that with Trump in the general, the map changes and that states that are or have been um, truly red states are shifting or will at least be in play. Do you think that's true? I think there are two schools of thought on on this one. And one is, you know, it's, I think, a widely held belief among the Democrats that um, the the electoral map which has been hardwired for quite a while now, uh, where you have this situation where at least two-thirds of the states, dating back probably at least a quarter century, have voted one way. And then you've got a, you know, a smaller class of swing states that go back and forth, you know, somewhere around 10 or so, roughly. And I think many Democrats believe that you're going to see states like Arizona, states like Georgia, states that were thought to be sort of spiraling out of the Republican orbit sometime in the near future that, and I think the thinking among Democrats is maybe that gets accelerated because of Donald Trump and because of uh, Donald Trump's unpopularity with Hispanics and African-Americans. Hispanics changing the the map in Arizona and African-Americans changing the map in Georgia. I think the other side of that, Republicans haven't won a presidential election in Pennsylvania or Michigan since 1988. It's a long time. But those states aren't really that blue. They're pretty competitive. And the thinking is that maybe Trump really energizes white working class voters that feel disaffected in those states. Well, he does. I mean, the most intense, one of the most intense Trump rallies I've been to was outside of Detroit, a suburban place where there have been a lot of auto workers who have lost their jobs. And those are the people that Trump connects with. And so maybe a lot of the people attending his rally is going to be Republican voters anyway, but there are a lot of swing voters here. They all work together on these same assembly lines. They've all lost their jobs. And the issues that resonate, uh, that Trump talks about, should resonate more. But, you know, the flip side of that is you go to these states uh, where the Hispanic population is growing and where the that's going to impact, you know, who wins Colorado, Nevada, Arizona. That's why you mentioned Arizona. You can almost forget about those states. I mean, Hillary Clinton's not talking about having to name a Hispanic running mate anymore because that is basically done. I'm actually fascinated by this thing that you're bringing up, Eli, and that's about the kind of people who are turning out for Trump. And the one thing that Donald Trump did not do in the primary season was tap into that network, that vast, vast network of millions of not rich people to say, give me some money too. In fact, he based a huge part of his campaign on this idea that he was going to self-fund. And now we hear he's not going to fully self-fund in a general election. The question for me, and it's going to you, Ken, is does he focus on the whales or does he go after the same kind of people that um, Ben Carson so successfully grasped? Yeah, I think we're going to see a little bit of both. I think the, the real question is, the degree to which the state parties, it's not the RNC. We know that the RNC is going to have to uh, reach a joint fundraising agreement with Donald Trump's campaign. And we have sources who tell us that that is actually in the works. The, they kind of have to. The real question will be, what happens with the state parties? There are so many state parties, if you recall, state party officials who are adamantly opposed to Donald Trump 
remember in Colorado where, where Eli last worked, where uh, when Trump lost the convention there to Ted Cruz, the state party Twitter account tweeted something like, we did it. Something. We did it. Hashtag never Trump. Yeah. So uh, it's going to be they're going to they're going to face a real conundrum where they're going to be asked probably by the RNC, maybe by Trump's campaign to join a joint fundraising agreement uh, with the Trump campaign and the RNC. And the reason why that's so key is the number of state parties that end up joining into the joint fundraising agreement will determine the size, the maximum size of the check that the RNC or the Trump campaign can solicit to this joint fundraising agreement. This is a new twist. This is something that is a result of a 2014 Supreme Court decision in a case called McCutcheon versus Federal Election Commission. The result has been Hillary Clinton set up this monstrous joint fundraising committee that includes her campaign, that includes uh, the DNC, and that includes 32 state parties. So they can accept checks of $350,000 or more I think Trump will probably try to, em to to emulate that. Now, the interesting thing is we wrote a story this week about, about Hillary Clinton's joint fundraising committee. Her campaign is really controlling where this money is going. It's not going to the state parties. And that's the great myth here that they Hillary would defend her joint fundraising, her vacuuming up of these giant checks by saying, oh, that's not for me. That's for down ballot. That's for the state parties. Well, we actually looked at their FEC reports at the not just the, the Clinton campaign and the JFC, the Joint Fundraising Committee's reports and the DNC's reports. We looked at the state party reports and we found that almost the day that they that they were receiving these transfers, they were sending the exact amount of money right back to the DNC. So it's the DNC and the Clinton campaign that are really benefiting from this not the state parties. The Clinton campaign pushed back very aggressively on this. Uh, they told they told other reporters at other media outlets who sought to follow our story that it was misleading. And we actually had CNN, not to name names, but CNN wrote a story in which they said that the Clinton campaign had refuted parts of our story. I tweeted that out. I emailed some editors over at CNN. And today we have corroboration that, in fact, there was no refuting PolitiFact changed their rating on a claim. Incidentally, George Clooney made this claim. George Clooney had hosted one of these $350,000 ticket fundraisers uh, at his place in California. And he said when asked about it, the overwhelming majority of this money is going down ballot, is going to governors and senators. Uh, PolitiFact rated that mostly true. Our story ran PolitiFact changed their rating to half true. I would argue for mostly false, but I'll take half true. Nonetheless, back to Trump. He's going to have to emulate this, and it's not necessarily for the state parties. It's for him, and it's for the RNC. And what's going to be interesting is how does this impact his brand, right? Because at the end of the day, Trump is a brand guy. He's selling a brand. He's been doing that for 30 years. And throughout this campaign, part of his appeal, when you would talk to people at his events, what do you like about Donald Trump? They would say, I like that he's different. He's independent. He doesn't owe anything to any of those rich people on Wall Street or anything. That was part of the populist appeal. Well, yeah, he probably has some ability to small dollar fundraise online, a la Ben Carson and Bernie Sanders. But he just hired a finance director uh, today, Thursday, a guy who is a hedge fund guy, incidentally donated a lot of money, uh, mostly to Democrats over the last 15 or 16 years. But he's so professionalizing. He like Donald Trump. Yes. Whatever's convenient, right? Play both sides. And Donald Trump 
It's it's whatever's convenient now. It was convenient to say I don't need their money. I'm independent. George or I'm sorry, Jeb Bush. Jeb's bought and paid for. He's got his super PAC. He's bought and paid for. He used that to devastating effect against Jeb because it was convenient. Now he's the general election nominee, and Trump can make another argument of convenience and say, well, I'm not going to sell my skyscrapers to finance my campaign. Of course, I need money. His supporters will forgive that, we think, because so far, Trump saying one thing, then saying the opposite 30 seconds later hasn't really hurt him. But if this is inconsistent here, this is elemental to the brand of Donald Trump that he had and built throughout the primary of being independent, not giving a shit about what anybody else says, not being controlled by anybody. Now, if he's got his hand out begging for you know, six-figure checks, does that change something? I have an email here this morning after uh, the, he, he acknowledged what everyone sort of knew already that he was going to start raising money for the general election. Got a, 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 a flood of emails from these good government groups highlighting all the times in which he said he doesn't want the lobbyist money. says, I'm self-funding. I'm going to take care of the people, not the special interest in insurance companies like the other candidates, he says. And the donors, the special interest, the lobbyists have very strong power over these people, those being his now vanquished rivals. So you're right, it does pre uh, present really a brand challenge for him. However, I talked to GOP fundraisers who said there was a window here. He may have already closed it, but he had a window very early on to say, and, that, and these people wish that he took advantage of this, to say, I'm going to self-fund my campaign, but if these small donors, if they want to give me money, if my mom and pop wants to give me money or a retiree wants to give me money, I'll take their small, don their small donations. I will match it with my own money. He could have capped it at like $100 or $200. There's no way that window's closed. Uh, he'll certainly try it. He'll try to. He'll try to find a way to rationalize it. But well, this he'd be stupid not to, wouldn't he? I mean, he, he would, would be, be absolutely. Stupid but not he's to been stupid this. already to to to, to sort but of. But he's also the almost the nominee, right? And he's so. almost the nominee, and he's a nominee who is uh, uh, has a real financial problem that he wouldn't have had if he would have done this initially, and. The RNC wouldn't be in the situation where they're basically wondering if all these new voters who came into the system, more votes ever than ever in a Republican primary, that they have failed to capture and sufficiently take advantage of the data and the contributions that these folks could uh, direct to not only Trump's campaign, but to the RNC, to state parties, to candidates in those states. Where is that information? Trump didn't effectively capture it. And now they're going to retroactively try to go back and reconstruct it. A lot harder to do that after the fact. Well, let me flip this around for a second, because I actually think Hillary Clinton and her team, they really need to be worried about this and not because of the whales. I know that you're constantly talking to these big money guys, and I get that perspective. But the one huge weakness we saw in Hillary Clinton's campaign, and Charlie, you should speak to this, she could not believe the kind of feedback Bernie Sanders was getting. Right. He was collecting way more money from small donors than I think that campaign had ever been able to anticipate. If I could just say before, Charlie, because this is sort of something that I've been uh, following and sticks in my craw a little bit, is that Bernie Sanders, you know, he is he's collecting that data. And that data exists, and that's something that he will end up if, if as everyone expects at this point, Hillary is the nominee, 
Hillary will find a way to take advantage of that data by renting his list, by buying portions of his list, by having the DNC rent his list and do fundraising appeals in a way that will allow them to capture the data, the names of these people, and hopefully, you know, their names, their email addresses, and hopefully their stream of small donations. That data doesn't exist on the right because Trump has done such a poor job of collecting it from the very Unless get-go. Unless he buys Ben's list. And, and whether that translates or not is sort of an open question. Ben Carson is a great example because he spent a ton of money. That didn't just happen. Ben Carson didn't just like put out his shingle, put out his website and start raising money. He assiduously worked to build this list by renting it from vendors like uh, Newsmax and others who rent out these lists and do it. It's like a science. You know, they have the click through rates. They know how many people are actually actively clicking through and, and whether they're getting a good bang for the buck on rentals. Donald Trump has done very little of that. And that's uh, and he may count on the RNC to sort of backfill it. But they too are limited because they don't have that small donor base either. It needs to be constantly refreshed, every, not just every election cycle, every week, every month. And he's starting at a huge deficit. Charlie, do you think that Donald Trump could pose the same kind of financial challenge that Bernie did to, to Hillary? At this point, I, I don't think so. Uh, and that's based on a couple of points. Number one, I start from the assumption that he doesn't have the money he says he has. And however much he has, he has shown very little inclination that he's going to spend it or spend much of it on a, pre on a presidential endeavor. And I think he missed his window as well. The window to build that Bernie Sanders-like online cash juggernaut. And I think Trump actually could have done it, given the message and the messenger. Uh, had he built that early in the campaign, I think he'd be in a position to really reap the rewards now, but it's too late to build it, I think. Ken, how much do these candidates need to raise? We have to think about it as not just the candidates themselves, but the candidates, their national party committees that are supporting them, and then the super PACs and other outside groups that are supporting them. If you add up all that on both sides, I put the number at about $1.5 billion minimum, potentially much more. I think Hillary's probably going to outraise. The, the, the Hillary side is going to probably end up outraising and outspending the Trump side, which will be a, a, a real uh, conundrum, a real rhetorical challenge for Hillary Clinton, who is trying to appeal by, to Bernie Sanders supporters by saying that she'll overturn Citizens United and that she'll uh, reduce the influence of big money in politics. Um, that 1.5 billion is is more about 50 percent, slightly less than 50 percent more than what Obama and his allies and Romney and his allies raised in 2012. That said, we haven't seen that the spending has actually been at a uh, lower pace than what we saw in 2012. Nonetheless, I think we'll get to 1.5 billion. And one thing to add, we're learning today that Hillary's people are starting to reach out to some Republican donors, especially Wall Street types. Uh, sensing an opportunity to bring some of them on board. Uh, and that is an opportunity for Hillary Clinton. I think it's also a potential risk because symbolically, like Ken alluded to, Hillary has a problem with the Democratic base, the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren wing of the party. They already see her as too cozy with Wall Street. And so for Hillary to go out and she said, oh, this money can be had, and money is important in this election, of course. But if she's out there, saying, hey, work with me, you know I'm better than Trump, to hedge funders and to Wall Street types and to neocon conservatives on national security, that just hardens the perception that the Democratic base already has of her as someone who's too willing to compromise on their core principles. And so again, it just zaps the motivation of these 
Bernie bros of the Elizabeth Warren progressive wing of the party to turn out for Hillary Clinton. It makes maybe an opportunity financially, but it makes it harder for her uh, to unify that Democratic Party. I think we're going to talk about this every single week of this podcast. All right. I want to talk to Scott Bland now. Scott Bland is the editor of Politico's Campaign Pro. We've been talking a lot about the kind of supporters that Trump has, that Hillary Clinton has, what they need to do. Let's talk about the Latino vote. There have been some estimates that 13.1 million Latinos will be eligible to vote in 2016. Most people are going to say they're just going to go naturally to Democrats, but don't Democrats have to actually do something to turn them into a real voting bloc? Yeah, absolutely. You know, for all the talk uh, about the growing power of the Hispanic vote, it's really more of a sleeping giant at this point. Not since 1992 have more than half of eligible Latino voters actually turned out to vote. Uh, you know, not in really the modern era of the Latino vote mattering in national politics. And the closest we got was in 2008, when 49.9% of eligible Latinos uh, turned out when Barack Obama was elected president. And so the question is now, can, can Democrats who have really, especially in states like Colorado, in Nevada, have really come to rely on the growth of the Latino vote to, to power their electoral future, can they take advantage of this moment when Trump has based an entire campaign uh, on, on denigrating part of the population to... Uh, turn that growing Latino population into Latino voters. Steady voters, regular voters. And that's the thing. Once you once you get people to vote for the first time, all the research shows that's the real jump. If you can get people to vote once, they tend to vote again. And so th this could, you know, it's not just about the 2016 election. This could turn into a real generational opportunity for the Democratic Party to convert uh, legions of new voters. And it's actually a great confluence for Democrats who are already looking at this as sort of a key challenge for them headed into this election cycle before they knew they were going to be given this gift, Donald Trump, in terms of rallying uh, Latino voters, not just for Democrats, but against Republicans. $15 million campaign to mobilize Latino voters in key states. Soros is contributing $5 million of that. Um, he's actually way up back to where he was in 2004, when he was the original mega donor, he's at about $20 million in 2016 checks by my by my counting, not just obviously to, for uh, Latino mobilization efforts. And on the other side, you have the Koch brothers still investing, even as they've withdrawn a little bit from the presidential races, we're reporting. Uh, they continue to invest in this Libre initiative. It's an effort to uh, register and mobilize Latinos around conservative principles. And my sources in the Koch network tell me that even as they're pulling back from the presidential campaign because of their aversion to Donald Trump, they continue to be committed to this effort in particular. Well, it's important beyond 2016, but I mean, I know we're nerds in here, but like, let's not overthink this, right? This is, I mean, Donald Trump is the Hispanic turnout operation for Hillary Clinton. She's going to crush it with these voters. It's just, it's not that complicated. But there's a reason the Clinton campaign are looking to make sure that they press this advantage as much as they can. In Colorado, there's no, it's no surprise they hired a Hispanic girl, Emmy Ruiz, to run the state for them. She's going to be front and center. She's going to be visible. Um, that is part of the play here, not just saying, you know, kicking your feet up and saying, we got Donald Trump, we're going to win, but making sure that those Hispanic voters who turn out, turn out and, and tell their friends to turn out and they make sure that they capitalize on this because Donald Trump is cagey and you will see him on TV saying, but I love, I love Hispanics. I love Latinos. The Hispanics. The Hispanics. I mean, Hillary's people <laughs> are going to make sure that what they hear are the 
I think they're rapists. Some are good people. That's what they want them to hear. So I know that we haven't seen a lot of mechanics out of the Trump campaign, but is there any any indication that they see the Hispanic voting, um, that they see any opportunity with Latino voters? I think they think they can sort of, you know, win over anybody. I mean, Donald Trump thinks he's charming enough to win over anybody or that he'll just trash Hillary to the point that some of these people will make an argument that, hey, I love Latinos. Don't worry about the wall. I'm the, the, you know, he says the good ones. I, I want them to come. We're going to have a door in the wall. I mean, he's always trying to sort of have it both ways. It's just about who makes a more persuasive argument. But I do think that he's given Hillary far more material than, uh, you know, than she has given him and he does stars. also trump does have a, a hispanic guy as his uh, nevada state director a guy by the name of charles muñoz who continues to be active in the campaign long after nevada has voted uh and so yeah i mean they're making an effort but how 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 real how well thought out it is yeah. that's the question we get asked about all of trump's uh demographic targeting here's what i would say to that to you know any of these hopes that the the trump campaign or trump himself might have of winning large portions of the Hispanic vote. Uh, our crack Congress team here at Politico, listen listen to what they got audio of John McCain saying at a recent fundraiser for his Senate campaign in Arizona. But have no uh, doubt that if it's Donald Trump at the top of the ticket here in Arizona, with over 30 percent of the vote being Hispanic vote, I have no doubt that this may be the race of my life. So what does that mean? What it means is that the down ballot, you've got Republicans kind of already quietly behind closed doors at this point, panicking about what Trump means for what the Hispanic vote is going to be doing and what and broadly what what the rest of the vote is going to be doing, too. But like John McCain said, very large proportion of the vote is Hispanic in Arizona. Also, a very large proportion of eligible Hispanics in Arizona who have never voted before. And there's going to be a huge effort, especially if it gets to a point where the Clinton campaign and the DNC can take a look at some numbers there and say, hey, we have a real shot to actually invest national money in Arizona to do this for the first time. So, Scott, is there any realistic chance that John McCain could go down? Realistic? Yes. Uh, I don't I certainly don't think right now that it's more likely than not. I think, you know, and he if you look at the ratings, if you look at the poll numbers, I don't think he's trailing in any polls at this point. But the man himself is nervous about this. But this is what the Kochs are trying to protect against. And it's long term. It's not just 2016. But the risk with Trump is that Republicans look at him and they say, we could lose women for a generation. We could lose Hispanics for a generation because their first experience, these new voters are coming in, is going to be to vote against Donald Trump, the Republican nominee. And so that's why the Kochs are investing long term in trying to make sure that you know, new Latino voters understand conservative principles and understand that they're not just about Donald Trump, but they are doing that into a really strong headwind. You know what, though? Like all these long term investments is Marco Rubio did an interview on CNBC last year. Remember that guy, Marco Rubio? He, he did an interview with John Harwood where uh, Harwood was saying, you know, all this immigration talk going on in the primary, isn't it going to hurt? And he's, Rubio said, no, no, no. Uh, the party is going to be defined by its nominee. This was last year. Look where we are now. The party is going to be defined by its nominee. Little you know, on, on Eli's point, it, you know, there is sort of a, a a valid argument that I think conservatives can make and that the Kochs are trying to make that in some ways, Hispanic culture is sort of more conservative, socially conservative than the mean of the Democratic Party, certainly the, the, the liberal base of the Democratic Party. So there is the potential to, to find some headway there 
The question you know, is but, whether Trump so dramatically hurts them yeah. that that's totally negated. What we've seen in this general, um, what we've seen in this primary election so far is that ideological purity doesn't matter, right? It hasn't mattered to any of these voters. And I don't know that you can say because someone has grown up in a traditionally Catholic Latin American household that opposes abortion, that they're suddenly going to be Republican voters or Trump voters. Well, ideology hasn't mattered, right? But like constituency politics still matters. I mean, why, what unifies all the Trump supporters, right? A lot of them are like sort of working class white voters who are frustrated, who feel the country moving away from them. So there are still identity politics at play here. It's just a matter of, you know, with Hispanics. I mean, it may, it may be, yeah, they've been arguing that for a long time and trying to appeal more to Hispanics. Is like, look, you identify with us on social issues. But... Again, what we're looking at here is bigger than any one issue. I think it's partly it's identity politics. It's partly identity election. politics, but yeah. This yeah, is but I want to talk about this election. So Trump can't change the things that he said in the past. He could certainly not say them again. But what if he picks a Hispanic as his running mate? I think there's certainly a strong uh, argument to be made that that would be an intelligent choice, a, a sort of conventionally intelligent choice. In fact, you know, we're hearing that uh, one of the folks who, who is being pushed is Marco Rubio. He would check a lot of those boxes. Hispanic, foreign policy experience, geographically sound. He has that being fake from Florida. Well, I mean, he's a he's a hawk. He's a neocon. And I think that that would go a long way towards allaying the money people who Trump needs to win over, uh, who are a little bit leery about his support for Israel and his hawkishness. More generally, he's espoused sort of a less interventionist foreign policy. Marco Rubio certainly more than offsets that. Yeah, but is Marco Rubio going to risk his entire political future and risk going down with this ship that is Donald Trump. I mean, right now, what Zero do we hear chance. from his people is, I don't want anything to do with this. Now, if it gets offered, maybe you think about it. It is the vice I presidency. I don't know. You remember that speech that he gave when yeah, he was this exiting? Is, when his people the night he dropped out said he's going to be in perfect position for 2020 when the party needs somebody to come in and heal. You know who's I saying that this I remember getting the email from them about 30 minutes before it was over. And Everybody's right, the right, 2020 guy. Right. Everybody's the 2020 guy. But, you know... If if Ru I mean Rubio's right out of central casting for a VP, it's just I would does say, anybody want to be Trump's VP? I would say that a Trump Rubio ticket yes, would be Chris the Christen. perfect capstone to this bizarre what year year and a half run that we've been on now. That that would that would be the weirdest thing ever. Trump Jeb might be even weirder. <laughs> All right, that's a wrap for us. Thank you, Ken. Thanks for tuning in, everyone out there. Thanks, Eli. Thank you, Kristen. Charlie. Thanks, Kristen. Scott. Thank you. I'm Kristen Roberts. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, share on Facebook or on Twitter, and send us your ideas and your questions at nerdcast at politico.com. Thanks for listening.